Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book two, chapter 12. But first, there's a post here by Kreskin's ESP, who's posted to the subreddit, a post entitled Losing Steam. My daily chapter was a joy during book one, and now it feels like a chore. I'm a few nights behind, and it's hard to find motivation to spend a portion of my nightly reading time on this instead of something I enjoy. Hate to tap out so early, though. Anyone else struggling? Appreciate your um, candidness there, and uh, good on you for putting that out there. Simply Productive said, Hey friends, this is very common. Whenever you switch from war chapters to peace chapters and back, you'll find that the appreciation switches from one group to the other. Sometimes feel like a 50-50 split. Half love the war chapters, half love the peace chapters. Um, I would agree with that to some extent. I think especially with books one and two. Book one is a peace chapter, a society chapter, and it just happens to also be just a really great bit of the book. Um, And then book two, we switch to a war chapter, a war section, and it does happen to be a bit of a slump in the book. It's kind of like war is brewing still, and they're off on the campaign, but it's not really that exciting as yet. Um... And so it is a bit of a slow bit of the book, especially if you're a few chapters behind. You're still at, say, chapter, I don't know, eight or nine or something like that. Um, Even within book two, I would say stick it out because book two, despite it being one of my least favorite books of the novel, um, it actually does contain what I would say is probably my favorite chapter in the novel. One of them, at least. Um, So that's chapter 19. So stick around, I'd say, to at least then. I don't want to big up that too much, though, because then, you know, I'm going to overhype it and then that that chapter might disappoint you. But I really love that chapter. Um, There are actually a few moments in book two that I love. Um, But I would agree with you, though. Book two, you do lose a bit of steam. Absolutely. I would highly recommend keeping reading, though. There's a lot of really great bits of this book, much like the first book. You know, book one is a great bit, and there are more great bits. Um, and so it does it does change pace back and forth between really intriguing bits like book one and then more slow-paced bits. Um, I think it's just the nature of an epic as well. It has its peaks and troughs. There are more peaks coming. That's all I would say. Stick with it. I hope you do. Um, Anyway, book two, chapter 12. What is your opinion of Bilibin's advice to Andrew? As opposed to galloping off to the army, he tells Andrew to look at things from another angle and you'll see that your duty is, on the contrary, to protect yourself. What do you think? Andrew thinks to himself that he is going in order to save the army. Do you think he has a plan or is it just his ambition and dreams of glory talking? You know, I don't think Bilibin's advice is really fair at all i don't think just because you're higher ranking in the military doesn't mean that you're more important and you shouldn't be put in any danger i think um and i don't think many people at all in a military career would agree with that i don't think you'd get very far in a military career if that was your attitude um so i think Bilibin is more talking from his point of view in the diplomatic situation where it's like well i'm in a privileged position to have this job so I might as well exercise the full extent of my privilege and stay safe and look after myself. I don't think it's very attractive at all, and I can see why Andre laughs it off. Grey Boff said, I think it's clear that Andrew's idealistic, 
idealistic notions of war have definitely crossed over in the real bravery when met into real bravery when met with Bilibin's reasoning for self-preservation. He really believes that he's integral to the success of the army. You have to admire his confidence, but almost doesn't feel as if he grasps the possible consequences. Could be. I think they're just fearless. These people all seem fearless. I mean, other than Bilibin and his crew. Angel of Alchi said, I think that even though Andre wants to be a hero and save the day, he has a moral obligation to let the army know they are pretty much surrounded, since they might not know that the French crossed the bridge. So even though Andre wants to be a hero, wouldn't it be very wrong to run away with that information and let the Russian army get off caught off guard? Wouldn't it be the decent thing to do? Vile Terror said, Having read further ahead from my attempt last year, well done, Bilibin's words are foreshadowing for a few characters. He has reworded the great modern adage, don't set yourself on fire to keep someone else warm, in this case saving a literal army from defeat. That his glory and ambitions talk... Oh, that is his glory and ambitions talking, with a potent cocktail of burning desire to bring needed and a hero of glorification of war. From a practical perspective, there is only so much Andrew can do to lead the Russian army to victory, especially with all the ridiculous blunders the Austrian and Russian army have managed to do. The incident with how the French took another critical bridge is damning evidence of incompetence all around. It doesn't help that Napoleon was one of the most brilliant military strategists of all of the 19th century. Now, what are we reading here? That's chapter 12. I say we move right along and go on to chapter 13. I will uh, take this gap here while I find the chapter as a chance to remind you all that this podcast is brought to you by patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. If you want to show your support for this project as we continue through, you can do so at patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Any donation, large and small, is very much appreciated. Now, guys, there is the fatigue of cha- of book two, and I can see that some of you are feeling it. I do hope that you'll stick it out, though. You're in a slump. You are smack bang in a slump, all right? But it picks up, and even in the following few chapters, we'll see a bit of that. And definitely by the end of book two, which only has, uh, I think it's 21 chapters in book two, so we're more than halfway through book two, and the second half of book two is the more exciting half. So even within this slump, we're on the way out, and I think it's going to grab your attention again in the following days. So stick with it. You'll be glad you did. And as always with books where they have little slumps, you know, where they have that momentum that slows and speeds up, um, it's rewarding once you get through them. It kind of, the pace dragging you through slow bits makes the more exciting bits sweeter. It kind of enhances them in a way. All right, so, um, yeah, that's my advice. Stay with us. Later that night, after taking leave of the Minister of War, this is Chapter 13, later that night, after taking leave of the Minister of War, Bolkonsky set off to rejoin the army, not knowing where he'd find it and shitting himself that the French might capture him on the way to Krems. All the people attached to the court in Brunn were packing up, and the heavy baggage had already been sent ahead to Olmutz. Near Hetzeldorf, Prince André made it to the high road where the Russian army was fanging along, all nimbly-bimbly. 
The road was so chockers with carts that you couldn't possibly get a carriage through. Prince Andre grabbed himself a horse and a Cossack from a Cossack commander and, starving his guts off and knackered to old jiggery, he rode past the baggage wagons and off to find the commander-in-chief and of his, uh, and his own luggage. Some absolute putrid rumours about the army's current sitch had reached him on his way, and now, seeing the haggard troops scrambling in retreat, confirmed these rumours. C'était armée russe... French words. I guess we're going to read the English translation. <laughs> that Russian army that's been brought from the ends of the earth on English gold will show them the same fate, the fate of the army at Ulm. Prince Andre recalled Bonaparte's words in his address to the army at the beginning of the campaign and he became amazed and his hero's genius at his hero's genius sorry, I'm proofreading as I write and a bit butthurt too and vaguely hopeful that he might find glory and if there's nothing I can do but die he thought well, if that's what I must do I'll do it just as well as anyone else he watched with disdain at the endless stream of confused detachments, carts, guns, artillery and more baggage wagons and vehicles of all kinds overtaking each other and causing gridlock in the muddy road, three or sometimes four abreast. From all around as far as the ear could reach he heard the rattling of wheels, the creaking of carriages, the tramp of horse hoofs, whips cracking, the urging of horses, the shouting, swearing and carrying on of soldiers, orderlies and officers. There were horses all over the sides of the roads, ones that didn't quite make it, some flayed, some not, and broken down carts with solitary soldiers sitting by them as if waiting for something, and again heaps of stragglers who'd fallen behind their companies or who'd set off to nearby villages and come back dragging behind them sheep, chooks, hay and bulging sacks. Wherever the roads steeped up or down, the crowds got thicker and the yelling got more aggro. Soldiers were knee-deep in mud, floundering about, trying to push guns and wagons through. Whips cracked, hoofs slid, traces broken, lungs were strained from shouting. The officers directing the march rode up and down the line of carts. Their voices were piss-weak among the madness, and you could see on their faces that they were feeling useless against such shambles. Here is our precious, precious Orthodox army, thought Polkonsky, recalling Bilibin's words. He wanted to find out where the big dog commander-in-chief was and so rode up to a convoy. From directly opposite came a strange single-horse vehicle, evidently jerry-rigged up by soldiers out of salvaged bits and bobs and looking like a cross between a cart, a cabriolet and a caliche. There was a soldier driving, and behind him in the carriage, under a roof made of leather, and behind an apron, was a woman wrapped in shawls. Prince Andre rode up to them, and was just asking a soldier about the commander-in-chief when he was interrupted by the woman screaming and going berserk. An officer in charge of transport was smacking the shit out of the soldier who was driving the woman's carriage for trying to cut in line, his whip slapping down against the apron of the carriage. The woman screamed like a maniac. Seeing Prince Andre, she leaned out from behind the apron and waving her thin arms from under her woolen shawl, she hollered, Mr. Aide-de-Camp, Mr. Aide-de-Camp, for fuck's sake, protect me. What will they do to us? I am the wife of the doctor of the seventh chasseurs. 
They won't let us through. We've been left behind and we've lost our people. I'll flatten you into a fucking pancake, shouted the angry officer to the soldier. You and that slut can fuck off back to where you came from. Mr. Aide-de-Camp, help me. What does it all mean? screamed the doctor's wife. Be a sport and let this cart through. Can't you see there's a lady on board? said Prince Andre, riding up to the officer. The officer took a look at him and, without saying shit, turned again to the soldier. I'll teach you to push on. Back. To push in. Back. Let them through, I said, repeated Prince Andre, compressing his lips. And who the fuck are you? cried the officer, turning on him with drunken rage. You, motherfucker, who are you? Are you in command here, mate? Huh? Or is it me? Oh yeah, it's me, bitch. So back off. Go back, or I'll flatten you like a pancake, repeated he. Evidently he liked saying that. Sick burn. Take that, little aide de camp, came a voice from behind. Prince Andre could see the officer was shit-faced in such a drunken rage he didn't know what he was saying. He was a little worried that sticking up for the doctor's wife in her weird as feff weird AF carriage might expose him to his most dreaded thing, ridicule. But his gut urged him on. Before the officer finished his sentence, Prince Andre looked like before the officer finished his sentence, Prince Andre, looking like his face was about to pop from fury, rode up and raised his riding whip. Kindly let them pass. The officer flourished his arm and quickly rode again. Those bastards on the staff are useless. This is their mess, he muttered. Have it your way. Prince Andre didn't look up as he rode away from the doctor's wife while she insisted he was her saviour and already rethinking with a feeling of disgust the minutest details of the humiliating scene, he galloped on to the village where the commander-in-chief supposedly was. On arriving at the village, he dismounted and headed to the nearest house, hoping to get a little rest and a feed, and maybe clear his head of the thoughts that tormented him. This is a bunch of fuckwits, not an army, he was thinking as he went up to the window of the first house. Then he heard a familiar voice calling his name. He turned to see Nesvitsky's handsome face looking out a little window. He was moving his moist little lippy whips as he chewed something and waving to him as he called him. Oi, Bolkonsky, Bolkonsky, can't you hear me? Oi, get over here quick, he shouted. Entering the house, Prince Andrei saw Nesvitsky and another adjutant were having a bit of grub. They quickly turned to ask if he had any news. He knew their faces and saw in them anxiety and agitation, especially on Nesvitsky, whose face was usually all chipper and sunshiny. Where's the commander-in-chief? asked Bolkonsky. He's here. That house over there, answered the adjutant. Is it true we're going for peace, for capitulation? asked Nesvitsky. was going to ask you the same thing. I don't know anything, except that it was a real pain in the ass to get here. Same for us, mate. It's shocking. I was wrong to laugh at Mac. We're copping it worse than he did, said Nesvitsky. Anyway, sit and have a feed. You'll be hard-pressed to find your baggage now, or anything else, Prince. And God knows where your man Peter is, said the other adjutant. Where's HQ? We're supposed to spend the night in Zname. I don't know, what's the name? Zname. I've got all my shit packed and ready to go on two horses, said Nesvitsky. They made me 
Sorry, I'm just editing as I write. I've got all my shit packed and ready to go on two horses, said Nesvitsky. They've made me two ripper packs. I could nick off over the Bohemian Mountains. Easy. It's not looking good, mate. But what's wrong with you? You're shivering. Are you crook? He added, noticing Prince Andre wince as if he'd been zapped by electricity. It's nothing, said Prince Andre. He'd just remembered what happened with the doctor's wife and the drunk convoy officer. So, why is the commander-in-chief here? he asked. I can't figure it out, said Nesvitsky. All I can figure out is that everything is fucked, fucked and more fucked, said Prince Andre, and he went off to the house where the commander-in-chief was. He passed by Kutuzov's carriage and the knackered saddle horses of his suite, and with their Cossacks, who were talking loudly to each other, and entered the passage. Kutuzov himself was apparently in the house with Bagration and Weyrother. Weyrother was the Austrian general who'd replaced Schmidt. In the passage, little Kozlovsky was squatting with a clerk who, with his cuffs rolled back, was leaning on an upturned tub, scribbling a note. Kozlovsky's face looked ratchet. He clearly hadn't slept all night either. He flanked at Prince Andre, but didn't acknowledge him. Flanked? Flanked? I don't think that's the right word. Looked? He looked at Prince Andre, but did not acknowledge him. Second line, did you get that? He continued, dictating to the clerk. The Kiev Grenadiers, Pololian... I can't write that fast, Your Honour, spat the clerk, staring daggers at Kozlovsky. Through the doors came Kutuzov's voice, sounding riled up, and another unknown voice interrupting him. From the tone of these voices, the nonplussed way Kozlovsky looked at him, the pissy disrespect of the exhausted clerk, the fact that the clerk and Kozlovsky were squatting on a floor by a tub right near the commander-in-chief, and from the noisy laughter of the Cossacks holding the horses outside, Prince Andrei got the feeling that something big and terrible was about to happen. He turned to Kozlovsky and asked a bunch of questions. Immediately, Prince, said Kozlovsky, dispositions for Bagration. And what about capitulations? Nothing happening. Orders are issued for battle. Prince Andre moved towards the door where the voices were coming from. Just as he was going to open the door, the sounds stopped and the door opened. One moment, please. Just making another note. And the doors opened. And Kutuzov, with his eagle nose and puffy face, appeared. Prince Andre was standing right in front of the big dog, but the expression on his one good eye showed that he was too preoccupied with his worries to notice his presence. He was looking right at his own adjutant's face and not recognising him. You finished, said he to Kozlovsky. One sec, your excellency. Bagration followed the commander-in-chief out. He was just shy of being an old man, about medium height, with a firm blank face of the oriental type. I guess I'll present myself. What an honour, repeated Prince Andre loudly, handing Kutuzov an envelope. Oh, from Vienna. Nice one. Later, later. Kutuzov went out into the porch with Bagration. Well, see you later, Prince, said he to Bagration. God bless you, and Christ be with you too on your mission. He suddenly became all teary-eyed, and with his left hand grabbed Bagration and pulled him nearer, and with right, with his right, which wore a ring, he made the sign of the cross over him automatically, as if for the billionth time, and offered his chubby cheek. Bagration kissed his neck instead. 
Christ be with you, Kutuzov repeated, and went towards his carriage. Hop in, come on, said he to Bolkonsky. Your Excellency, I'd like to stay back and be of use here. Let me stay with Bagration's detachment. Hop in, said Kutuzov, not, ah, sorry, hop in, said Kutuzov, and noticing that Bolkonsky still wasn't hopping in, he added, I need good officers myself, need them myself. Andre hopped in and they drove a couple of minutes in silence. We've still got a long, long task ahead, he said, as if in his old fellow wisdom he knew what was on Bolkonsky's mind. That detachment is fucked. If one in ten men comes back, I'll thank God, he added. And Prince Andre wasn't sure if he was speaking to him or to himself. Prince Andre glanced at the big dog's face, only a foot from his, and couldn't help but notice the carefully washed seams of the scar near his temple, where an Ismail bullet had pierced his skull and emptied his eye socket. Yeah, I reckon he's earned the right to speak so calmly about those men's deaths, thought Polkonsky. That's why I want your permission to go with them, he said. Kutuzov didn't reply. It seemed like he'd forgotten what he'd been saying and sat deep in thought. After five minutes, gently swaying on the soft springs of the carriage, he turned to Prince Andre. His face was serene, no trace of agitation. With ironic calm, he questioned Prince Andre about his interview with the Emperor and what he'd heard at the court regarding the Krems debacle and about some ladies they both knew. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. A very slow one. A very slow one. Just in the nick of time when people are saying they're slowing down and losing steam and then we get stuck with one of the much slower chapters in the book, I would say. But hey, I'll say it again. Stick with us because things get more exciting very soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.